Psalm number 47. And it's probably good to just be aware that we're going to be turning back in just a moment to the seventh Psalm. So we're in Psalm 47, but we'll be <clears throat> looking back eventually at Psalm number seven. By way of introduction, <clears throat> within the last two weeks, we have seen violent protests from both the left and the right with unprecedented crackdowns on free speech as a result. Yesterday, the country of Iran fired long-range missiles which touched down a few miles from a commercial ship in the Indian Ocean, further stoking the flames of a potential war. A member of United States Congress has been accused of having a moral relationship with a spy from another country. On Friday, a magnitude 6.2 earthquake shook the country of Indonesia, killing 34 people and injuring 600. Every day, people in the United States are denied vital medicines and health care because Big Pharma has made them inaccessible. Opioid addiction is an epidemic. Radiation has been discovered in rice growing near Tokyo. All of this is occurring amidst the chaos and confusion of the COVID-19 pandemic. And yet, <clears throat> Psalm 47 makes an outrageous confession. And the outrageous confession of Psalm 47 is found in verses 7 and 8. Notice what the Bible said in the first line of verse 7. He said, For God is the King of all the earth. In verse 8 it said, God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. This confession is completely absurd and outrageous because the daily news seems to make the claims of this great psalm out to be a complete and total lie. The entire earth is constantly being tossed to and fro with controversy, crisis, conspiracy, and catastrophe. And you mean to tell me that God is king of all the earth? Outrageous. Poppycock, we say. If God is king of all the earth, then why do we have such great chaos and confusion around us on all sides? God is king of the earth? Ha! Yeah, right. Psalms 46, 47, and 48 are what are known as the songs of Zion. The ancient world is much like our modern world in that the people were keenly aware of the many phenomenon which constantly threatened their and our very existence on planet Earth. And when the world was in complete disarray, the people of Israel looked to the mighty city of Jerusalem with its gate, walls, and holy temple, and they knew that the Lord was keeping them safe. These quote-unquote Psalms of Zion were written to commemorate the faithfulness of God in keeping His people in Jerusalem secure. Now you remember last week we talked about the city of our God. And in Psalm 46, one of the contextual or the historical events 
that caused the psalmist to write the great and 46th psalm was the destruction of 185,000 Assyrian troops outside the city of Jerusalem. You remember the uh, wicked general of the Assyrian army, Sennacherib was his name. Uh, He's going to conquer the northern kingdoms of Israel and then he's going to come and he's going to lay siege to the city of the great king. That's the city of Jerusalem. And uh, he said that he's going to storm the city and take it. And obviously the profane, the holy things of God is in that process. And uh, as the narrative tells us in the book of 2 Kings, that God sent a mighty angel and they woke up the next morning. There was 185,000 dead bodies uh, surrounding the city of Jerusalem. The Bible says that King Sennacherib fled Israel and fled the southern kingdom of Judah and he went back to his city, I believe it was Damascus at that time, and, uh, and he stayed there indefinitely. Psalm 46 and verse number 4 mentions the city of God. He said, the nations rage, the, kingdom t- the kingdoms totter. Uh, oh, so, so sorry, verse 4. Look at that. We're, it's been a long morning already. I need another sip of tea. Okay, I'm ready. All right, Psalm 46 and verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. There you have a reference to the city of God. It's Zion, spiritual Zion, the city of Jerusalem. You remember we talked last week about the dual imagery. The city of Jerusalem is the physical representation of the abode of God here on planet Earth. But then in the celestial world, in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual world where God lives, there's another city and that city is called Zion. And so when the Jewish people looked at the city of Jerusalem, they actually by faith saw two cities. They saw Jerusalem, the physical city, and then they also saw Zion, the spiritual city and abode of God. Now, in Psalm 47, in verses 5 and 8, um, the, how should I say it? The city of God is not mentioned by name like it is in Psalm 46 and 40, 48, but it's definitely inferred, it's alluded to. So notice with me Psalm 47 verses 5 and 8. God has gone up. That's talking about the mountain, the temple mount. This gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. That's a reference to the temple in the city of Jerusalem. But also notice with me uh, verse Number two of Psalm 48, beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of a great king. And so here you have these three great songs of Zion. And these psalms or songs were written to commemorate God's faithful watch, care, and protection over the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem. If all the rest of Israel fell, as it did in more than one time in its history, God very often protected the city of Jerusalem uh, from enemy attack. 
What I want to do this morning is I want us to come to see that God is sitting upon his holy throne as king of all the earth and he is reigning over every nation since the beginning of time until this very moment, whether we believe he is or not. I'll say it again. Let us come to see that God is sitting upon his holy throne as king of all the earth. And he is reigning over every nation since the beginning of time until this moment, whether we believe that he is or not. Humanity, human beings will either acknowledge God's righteous reign over them or they will not. Either way, God is king, and this psalm seeks to strengthen our faith in God as such. I have three points this morning. Number one is the Lord Most High. Number two is the reign of God. R-E-I-G-N. The reign of God. And point number three is His coming kingdom. So you have three simple points, the Lord Most High, the reign of God, and last but not least, His coming kingdom. Now, this psalm begins with a very specific title for God in verse number 2. I want you to notice it with me. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. This is a significant title for God. We're going to talk about this this morning and what this means. This title, this name, designation for God, the Lord Most High. In ancient Canaanite religious thought, the god El was the, was the supreme deity of the pantheon. So let me just sort of paint with a broad brush stroke so we're aware of what's actually going on in this passage. In the ancient world... People followed, they worshipped something called tribal deities. Tribal deities. Each tribe, each country, each ethnic group, they all had their sort of own deity that they worshipped. I think of the Babylonians and Marduk and uh, some of the other Canaanite uh, religions uh, worshipped Ashtaroth and Baal. Uh, and Shemash, and sort of all these tribal deities. And so each people, each uh, ethnic group had their own personal deity or God. But something is different about this God El Elyon. The Hebrew God El Elyon literally means in Hebrew, the most high God. El meaning God, Elion meaning most high. It's interesting, as I was preparing the notes, I kept writing most high, and uh, spell checker kept saying, no, it's highest. And I said, no, it's most high. And spell checker says, highest. And there's something to be said about the designation most high. All the, almost all the English translations render this name of God, Elion, as most high. He is, in fact, most high. What does it mean that God, the God of Israel, is most high? We first sort of hear of this when we meet the man Melchizedek. That's a very interesting character in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, chapter number 14 and verse 19. Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem, who served, he said that he served El Elyon, 
the Most High God. Now, Melchizedek says that El Elyon is, quote, creator of both heaven and earth, Genesis chapter 14 and verse number 19. Later on, we meet the God or the Hebrew God, Yahweh. And we also believe, and the Bible tells us, that Yahweh, which in our English translations is almost always, and matter of fact, always rendered capital L-O-R-D, Lord. So our English designation for God, Lord, comes from the Hebrew Yahweh. Or in English, uh, years ago, people used to say Jehovah. The problem with the word Jehovah is that in Hebrew, there's no J's. You didn't know that, did you? Well, you know now. And so instead of a J, there's a Y, and it's Yahweh, and that is the proper name of the God of Israel in the Hebrew language. Now, I could go on about that, and there's actually a lot to say about just what little bits that we've discussed so far. But what we need to understand is that the Jews believed that their God, Yahweh, was El Elyon, so the Lord God Most High. And how it works is the Jews say, the Israelites say, that their God, Yahweh, sits at the top of the food chain. So whether or not you believe, and so the scholars sort of go back and forth, I'm of the mind, and certainly uh, many like me, uh, that, you know, fallen angels, you, if you remember what Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians, he said the idols, the, the Gentiles uh, sacrifice unto, he said they're not gods, he said they're demons. And so the idea is, is that the Gentile nations, these tribal deities, are not the true and living God, the most high God, the creator of heaven and earth. And when the Israelites were proving that their God was in fact at the top of the totem pole, at the very top of the food chain, what they would always point to is that Yahweh El Elyon, that's the Lord God most high, he was the creator of all things, including all the other lesser deities, uh, whether they be good or evil. And so this is a very detailed discussion. But what I want to do is I want to show you something, and I want to look at the entire book of Psalms, and I want to give you several key passages that deal with this designation, this name for God as Elion, or in English, Most High. Whenever I was uh, working in addictions recovery, I don't know if I should tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. With the, we always used to tell our students, folks, there ain't no high like the most high. What do you think about that? And that's true, isn't it? Uh, folks, you know, God sits at the top of the food chain. He is the CEO, the chief executive officer of all things in heaven and on earth. But I want to show you this, and I've got uh, like 12 different passages. There's actually another one that I did not look at in Psalm 9. Maybe I'll have the opportunity to, to discuss that one at another time. But in all these passages, you have this key name of God being mentioned. And here's what I want to do. 
From the Psalms, here is what we learn about the Lord Most High. You remember the significance of this is that this is the name of God that the psalmist opens the 47th Psalm up with. So in order for us to understand what Psalm 47 is saying, we must understand who this Lord Most High is. Okay? And hopefully by the time I'm done with all this, you'll be able to sort of piece it together and I'll try to help you do that. Number one, the Lord Most High is the one who gave the law on Mount Sinai. Listen to this. For you, O Lord, are the Most High, Elion, over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And so you have Psalm 97 and verse 9. He is the Lord Most High over all the earth, the one who gave the law at Mount Sinai. The Lord Most High, number two, is the one and only. This is an interesting passage. He said, let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are most high over all the earth. And so the idea is, no matter what gods, the tribes that surround the Jewish people worship, the Jews view their God, Yahweh El Elyon, the Lord God most high, they view him as the one who sits at the very pinnacle of the totem pole of the gods of the ancient Near East. Number three, the Lord Most High is the beginning, the center, and the end. This is a very striking passage. I want you to see this. This is Psalm number seven. So turn in your Bible to Psalm seven. In Psalm seven, you have the really the key names of God being mentioned. So we're going to look at verse 1, verse 11, and verse 17. Verse 1, verse 11, and verse 17. O Lord, that's the name Yahweh, my God, Elohim, I take refuge in you, save and deliver me from all who pursue me. Verse 11, God, Elohim, is a righteous judge, a God, El, who expresses his wrath every day. Verse 17, I will give thanks to the Lord, that's Yahweh, because of his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Yahweh. Look at this, most high, that's the name Elion. Now, in Psalm 7, you have what is and can be uh, described as an artistic whole. Verse 1, verse, uh, what is it, 11 and verse 17 the psalmist is saying the beginning, the middle, and the end are all centered in God. So he's saying Yahweh, El Elyon, El Elohim, our God, the God of Israel, he is the beginning, he is the center, and he is the end. This is a very God-centered view of who this being, who this deity is. And this is important because what we are to be centered on, what is to be the beginning and the ending of our life is our relationship to God and specifically our devotional life to God. God is the beginning of my devotional life. God is the middle of my devotional life. And God is the end of my devotional life. It doesn't matter which way you slice it. 
God is to be the very centerpiece, the focal point of all that I am and all that I do as a covenant believer under the new covenant. Just like the people of Israel believed that their God was the beginning, their God was the middle, and their God was the end, so it is in our lives that we are to be God-centered people. This is going to come back around in just a moment. Number four, the Lord Most High dwells upon the mountain. Listen to what Psalm 46 and verse 4 says. It said, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High, that's Elion, dwells. Number five, the Most High is the rock and the redeemer. He said they remembered that God was their rock, that God Most High was their redeemer. Psalm 78 and verse number 35. Number next, the Lord Most High was the only God to whom the Israelites were to offer sacrifices. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Psalm 50 and verse 14. The Lord Most High was the only God to whom the Israelites were to sing praises. In Psalm 92 and verse 1, it said, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Again, Elion. The Lord Most High alone heard and answered the prayers of the Israelite people in the Old Covenant. He said, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Psalm 57 and verse number 2. He said, The Lord Lord Most High's acts were from of old. This is dealing with the eternity of God. He said, Then I thought to this I will appeal the years of the right hand of the Most High. Psalm 77 verse 10. The Lord Most High's city is named Zion and its citizens have their names recorded. They live securely and have a glorious future in that celestial city. He said, Indeed of Zion it will be said this one and that one were born here her and the most high himself will establish her in psalm 87 and verse 5 the lord most high provides protection for his people he who dwells in the shelter of the most high will rest in the shadow of the almighty boy i really like that one that's psalm 91 and verse 1 i'll say that one again i like that one so much he who dwells in the shelter of the most high will rest in the shadow of the almighty there's two very profound names for god God. God is Elion and God is El Shaddai. He is the Almighty, He is the Most High, and He offers protection for His people. And last but not least comes our great text that we have for us this morning. He said, The Lord Most High is a great king over all the earth, for the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Psalm 47, verse number 2. Now, Psalm 47 begins with solidifying that the God of Israel, Yahweh El Elyon, the Lord Most High, He is in sovereign control over everything and over everyone on the earth. Now, that's not my word. That's what the Bible said. The Bible said that the Lord Most High is to be feared. He is a great king over all the earth. What does this mean? It means that nothing takes place without God knowing about it. And very often, God directly affects world events, world history. We're going to see that in just a moment. But my question for us is this. Do we really believe that? 
Do we, you and I, this morning, everyone underneath the sound of my voice who calls himself a Christian, do we really believe that God the Lord is most high and that he is sovereign over all the nations of the earth? Because if we really believe that, then why do we get our knickers in a bunch whenever things don't go our way? Why do we think that the world is going to end if our candidate is not still the president? Because I thought the Bible said, God said, that the Lord God Most High is reigning and ruling over all the nations of the earth. I guess that doesn't mean this one. I guess the nations of the earth have all been, been having God reign over them since time immemorial, except for America, God fell asleep. I mean, maybe God wasn't looking when all the drama and chaos took place over the election just a few weeks ago. That's how we think, though. That's how we behave. We get all ups upset and excited over things. I know because I do, just like you. Listen to this. In the first century, the evil, wicked, rotten Emperor Nero, probably one of the greatest antagonists, one of the greatest uh, uh, villains in the Christian church was Emperor Nero. He was a very wicked man. And Emperor Nero is going to set the city of Rome on fire. Now he's the Caesar. And he's going to sit up in the balcony of his palace playing the fiddle while the city of Rome burns. And when they start to pin it on Nero that he's the one that actually set fire to the city, what Nero does and says, no, it's those crazy Christians that did it. And this begins the first great persecution of the Christian church. And Emperor Nero is the one who's going to put both Paul and Peter to death. We're told that the great apostle Paul was held in prison and that he was tried by Emperor Nero and they chopped off his head and his head rolled down the steps of the palace in Rome. Now this is a very low point in Christian history. But listen to this. When Emperor Nero was burning Christians alive and martyring them for their faith, God was reigning. During the great Spanish Inquisitions where the Roman Catholic Church tried and falsely accused many Bible-believing Christians, they tortured them, they murdered them by the countless throngs and droves. I'm not making this up. You can look it up for yourself. Y'all have, have Google. And Google the Spanish Inquisitions is an extremely dark time. Hundreds of thousands of Christians died because they would not bow the knee and confess that the Pope was, you know, the royal pontiff. During the great Spanish inquisitions, when Christians were dying by the throngs, God was reigning. When Adolf Hitler begins the Holocaust in World War II, guess what? God was reigning. When Jan Hus, the great martyr of the Christian church, a hundred years before Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Castle Church, Jan Hus, the great martyr, was burned alive at the stake. God was reigning. 
And when Joe Biden is sworn in as the 46th president of the United States this Wednesday, guess what? God is reigning. He is on his throne. He is ruling. He is reigning. And he is just. He is righteous and he's true. Somebody says, well, I don't like that too much. Well, take it up with God. He's probably waiting to hear from you anyway. This great psalm calls our attention away from all the drama and chaos on the earth to the one who is the true king. See, we're having to learn to deal with what, I mean, generations of people who've lived and gone on before us, we're having to learn to deal with what they've learned to deal with. And that's this, that this world is not our home. And that no matter what king is reigning, they're not the true king. God, Christ, is the true king. Do we really believe that, though? Do we live our lives that way? Number next, the reign of God. When you study God's rule and reign over planet Earth, one of the most striking features about God's reign is that He sets up kingdoms and He dethrones kingdoms. I'll say that again. One of the most striking features about the reign and kingdom of God on earth is that God Himself sets up kingdoms and He tears down kingdoms. Somebody says, well, he ain't going to tear down our kingdom. You sure about that? What makes our kingdom any more righteous than any of the other ones that have gone on that God raised up and tore down? Yeah. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. You know, the average, life, the average lifespan of world powers, do you want to know how long it is? 200 years. I say we've had it pretty good. Because we're a little bit further than that. But folks, Egypt, the country of Egypt, for a thousand years was a flourishing dynasty was the marvel of the ancient world. But if you go to Egypt today, it's just a bunch of sand. I mean, the country of Rome, the city of Rome, the country of, you know, the, the empire of the Greco-Roman Empire, Greece and Rome both. You go to Rome and Greece today, and you go there to visit the ruins of a once great empire that has faded. Great Britain... The sun never sets on the kingdom of Great Britain. They're not so great anymore. Nations that were once great superpowers are now a mere shell of their former selves. Even the United States is in serious decline. 
Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 14 and verse 34. What's our problem? What's the problem with this country right now? Sin. When world leaders and nations blaspheme the Lord Most High, He will bring them low. Do you trust Him for that? I mean, has that not been true? Has not all the despots and tyrants of the earth, have they not all gone on under their judgment? Their kingdoms have crumbled. I want to give you an illustration. The tragic fate of Belshazzar. In the book of Daniel, Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Belshazzar is infamous for defiling the vessels which were taken from the temple of Jerusalem. One night during a drunken stupor, and by the way, if you read the text, there was a lot more than drinking that was going on. But during a drunken stupor, Belshazzar took the vessels from the house of God and he profaned them. In the midst of his big party that he was throwing, there was a finger that appeared and wrote on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. In the language it means numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. In other words, God told Belshazzar, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. That night, God would divide the kingdom of Belshazzar and give it to the Persian Medes. I want to read you this passage from Daniel chapter 5, verses 18, 20 through 22. You ready? The Bible says, The Most High God, there's our theme again, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. And what a story this is. You know, the great kingdom of Babylon, the great city of Babylon. You could have had six chariots drive across a street that was built on top of the walls. The walls were so tall and they were so thick that like six chariots next to each other could go along the top of this great city's walls. And they were impenetrable. But one night, as Belshazzar is defiling and profaning the vessels from the temple of a holy God, the true, the most high God of Israel, boy, those Persian Medes had a real good idea. And what they did was they dammed up the river that ran through the city. You see, no one could ever conquer the city of Babylon because it had a river. It was built over the top of a great river. And they had fish and they had water and the cities and nations and other armies would lay siege to the city of Babylon and they could never conquer it. But what the Persian Medes did is they waited one night and they dammed up the river and they stopped the water from flowing through the city and the Persian Mede troops marched through in the riverbed and they conquered the city in one night. Just like God said. By the way, 
He is the Most High. He is. He is the ruler. He is the sovereign. He is the king over all the nations of the earth. The most powerful, yes. The most pathetic, yes. When Daniel speaks to Belshazzar, he said specifically that Elion, the Most High, would overthrow the kingdom of Babylon. Belshazzar would be killed that night, and Darius the Mede would reign in his place. The title of the Most High God is significant because it is this God who is to be feared, because he alone raises up kingdoms and he alone dethrones kingdoms. God is sovereign over them all, and God himself determines the course and the end of human history. History really is his story. It's God's story about what God has been doing ever since the fall of man, and even before that. Our history doesn't begin with Adam and Eve. <laughs> Our history is even before that. Take heart this morning, knowing that no matter what happens, folks, listen, what does it mean to you that on, the, in the, on crucifixion day, when Christ is standing before like the third or fourth most powerful man, like, you know, Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor of a very affluent part of the world at that time, a very controversial part of the world, uh, Caesar's not going to put some flunky in charge of Judea. This is a place that had been uh, a focal point of many military battles and a lot of politics. The Jews were very influential people at the time of Christ. And as Jesus Christ is standing before one of the most powerful men on the earth, he says these words. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Is that what he said? Am I making that up? That's not just my wild idea about things. That's not the word according to Joel. That's what the word of God said. Jesus himself says, my kingdom is not of this world. When you look at what's going on at the Capitol this morning, God's kingdom is not of this world. I sense that we are so upset because what we have known is God has been so gracious for the last 200 and some odd years in the history of the United States to raise up a nation and a country that by and large has been founded and established by Christian and biblical principles. And now as American people have been taught secularism, evolution, socialism, communism now, there's a great departure from the Christian faith. And it was uh, Franklin, what's it? Uh, Benjamin Franklin himself, he said, the American form of government can only work if you have a moral people. And he was talking about the Christian faith. There's only one way our system of government works, and that is if people are in fellowship with God. Well, if you haven't figured it out yet, God's not very popular in our culture today. Is he? I mean, this is, look how filled up this building is. Everybody's just dying to get in here to hear about the Bible and about God. Aren't they? No, they're not. 
And this is the generation in which we live. But if we have our hearts and minds focused on the true king, he begins to fill our hearts with his strength and with his power. You know, what the psalmist does in verses 7 through 9, let's read them. Look at what he does. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Look at this. What a staggering way to end this great psalm. I mean, have you ever known a time in human history where the people and the princes and the kings of the earth came to pay homage to the God of Israel? This looks to a future kingdom. Let's talk about this. The great Bible commentator, Dr. Derek Kidner, says that verses 7 through 9 comprise a future prophecy. I agree. Verse 9 certainly has not occurred yet, and it certainly had not occurred in the time that the psalmist wrote Psalm 47. It looks to the future. If you want to see Psalm 47, 7, 8, and 9 come to fruition, that means that you see the reality being played out before you. What we need to do is be busy about our Father's business. We need to be busy about the Great Commission because Jesus himself said, the gospel of this kingdom shall be preached in all the earth and then shall the end come. There is coming a day when the kings and princes and peoples of the earth will come and pay homage and offer oblation to the Lord God and his Christ. There is coming a time in human history where God will wipe away all tears and God will establish his eternal kingdom in righteousness. There will be no more conspiracy, controversy, catastrophe on the earth. God will make a brand new heavens and a brand new earth. And Christ himself will sit on the throne and rule the nations. The Great Seal is the official crest of the United States of America. In one hand, the eagle has an olive branch. And in the other hand, he has arrows. The face of the eagle is turned toward the olive branch, suggesting the main desire is for war, or for peace, excuse me, and not war. God is very much this same way. In Psalm 2, the nations oppose the Lord and His anointed. They said in verse 3, let us break their chain and throw off their fetters. The psalmist then warns the nation at the end of the psalm by saying, Be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Kiss the sun, lest you be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. Psalm 42 and 47 reminds us that there are two kinds of compliance, just like the great seal of the United States of America. There's either an olive branch or there's arrows. God's face is turned toward the olive branch, who is Christ, Romans 11. 
God wants the nations to come to Him in peace on God's terms. Confessing that Jesus is Lord. Repenting of their sins. Sorry for what they've done. Being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Being renewed and reconciled and restored and regenerated and filled with God's precious Spirit. That's what God wants. That's the direction that God's face is turned. But God also has arrows. And God will be worshipped and praised for who He is one way or another. There are two kinds of compliance to the righteous reign of a holy God. There's willing, joyful compliance on one hand and forced and unwilling compliance on the other hand. God says, come to me through my son. God says, let me wipe and wash away your sins. God says, I want to restore you to a right relationship with myself. I want you to notice, look at this little phrase. Verse 9, the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. What does this mean? Who is this God of Abraham? Why is Abraham so significant? You remember what God told Abraham when he first met him? He said, in you, Abraham, shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And in that phrase, in you, Abraham, shall all nations of the earth be blessed, you really have a one-line statement of the message of the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, it was in you, Abraham, the people of God, Israel. In the New Testament, it's all nations shall be blessed. And this is what he's talking about. It's the promise that God made to Abraham. Do you remember what Paul said, Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17? He said, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Think about this. The way to escape the wrath and justice of God is to come to God through the seed of Abraham, who is Christ the Lord. To be a son of Abraham, a child of Abraham. It's not ethnic Israel only that has a future in the family of God, but it's all nations just like God said. He is the father of many, many nations. You're here this morning because of Abraham's faith. Did you know that? Isn't that wonderful to know? Somebody says, well, Brother Joel, I don't know if my faith can ever make a difference. Well, because of the faith of one man, Abraham, you have the entire world being blessed through his seed, through Christ the Lord. Let me encourage you to not live for this earthly city, for this earthly king, and for this earthly kingdom, but encourage you to live for the celestial king who is Jesus Christ the Lord. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There's only one way to become part of God's kingdom and God's family, and that's bring yourself under God's rule and reign through faith in Christ, who is the Lord of lords. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to know that we're free 
to not live for what happens to our little corner of the world, for our nation. Our nation is in the hands of God, just like every nation has been. God sets up kingdoms and God dethrones kingdoms and God is still God. Let's pray. Father, this morning, help us, Lord, to come to you through the olive branch like the great seal of our country says. And our desire, Lord, I pray, is for peace. Peace with you. Peace with one another. Lord, help your people to not get caught up with either side of the aisle, but to be outside of the aisle, bearing the reproach of Christ, speaking prophetically across both aisles. Lord God, I pray and I ask you, Father, for peace for your people in their hearts, in their minds, the peace of God which passes understanding for our God is peace. It's not just that God has peace, it's that you are peace, Lord. I pray that for your people and for myself this morning.